Good afternoon. Uh, it's good to see all of you. Uh, welcome to Zoe Community Church. I normally don't say this, but I feel like maybe I should today since there are some festivities going on outside. This is not the First United Methodist Church of Allen. Okay, this is the building of the First United Methodist Church, but this is not the congregation. So in case that's what you thought, I just wanted to put that out there. And for those of you who are here, thank you for skipping the tractor ride to come on in. Uh, I was telling James, hold on one second. I think I can ride it real quick, and I'll be back before the sermon. No, I was just kidding. But anyway, welcome to Zoe Church. We're glad you're here. I'm Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. And right now what we're doing is we're going through the book of 1 Samuel. So if you could grab your Bibles, open it up to the book of 1 Samuel. We're in chapter 25. We're going about a chapter a week trying to get the flow of the story, but also trying to get deep into the text. 1 Samuel 25. We've called this, uh, this series, this exposition through 1 Samuel, after God's own heart. Because David, who is the main character of this uh, book of Scripture, he is the man after God's own heart. 1 Samuel 25. Uh, someone was actually joking and asking me, are we going to do a special sermon today? You know, because of uh, Reformation Day, right? No, they actually, they, what they meant was because of Halloween, right? Are we going to do like a Halloween sermon or something. And I actually thought, you know, First Samuel is maybe the only book where we could have timed it right and done the passage where Saul consults that medium and brings up Samuel from the dead. It would have been kind of fitting for Halloween. And we literally miss our chance. We'll never have this book again. And it's going to be seven years until church is on Halloween again. But anyway, it's probably better. Uh, and in the spirit of the Reformation, uh, we don't celebrate Halloween as Christians. You know, like that's not a Christian holiday. That's what I mean. But in the spirit of the Reformation of Sola Scriptura, I think it would actually be better to just get into the Word instead of doing some special like Reformation Day thingamajig. So 1 Samuel 25. Now, the thing about today is it's kind of a long chapter. Okay, It's kind of a long story. And the thing about this chapter in particular is it's kind of a self-contained little side story almost. You might even think it's filler in a sense. It's not. Um, but it doesn't seem to fit into the main narrative plot of 1 Samuel. So what we're going to do is I'm going to pray first. I'm not going to read the whole thing like I normally do. And we're going to go through the text and explain it as we go along. Because I think some of you might be familiar with the gist of 1 Samuel 25, kind of what happens with Abigail. Uh, if that name is familiar to you, then maybe you kind of know the story. But I think most of us don't really know what's going to happen. So it might be a little exciting, right, to kind of unfold it as we go along. So that's the plan. So let me pray, then we'll get into it. Um, we'll get into the exposition. So let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we could be here. God, we're thankful, God, that you are a God of grace and of mercy and of kindness. God, we know that each and every one of us is in this room right now because of you, God, because you brought us here in your plan now, some of us, years ago, we might have never thought that we would step foot into the doors of a church. Some of us have been through so much in our lives, even this week. But God, we're here because of your grace. And even as Jeff was praying earlier, God, your word gives us strength. Your word is food for our souls, food that we need. So, God, I pray that as we come before you, and we know that it's a privilege, God, we don't deserve this, but as we come before you, I pray, God, that we would really understand that, 
God, I pray that we would sit before your word in humility and that we would desire to receive from your hand. God, we know that we are hard-hearted people, that we are prone to wander as we sang. So God, I pray, I ask, God, I, I beg you, Father, that your spirit would help us during this time. God, we want this time to be about you. May all of our attention and our focus be on you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Have you ever given in to temptation? Think about it for yourself. Have you ever given in to temptation? I heard this story uh, that this guy told. His name was James. Uh, it's not James Zito. I'm not trying to veil that at all. It's not Pastor James. A different James. James was talking about his relationship. See, James had been with Susan for seven years. They had met in college. They had gotten together. They were committed to each other. And they were traveling in Europe on a vacation. Now, they kind of had different personalities. They wanted to be spontaneous, but they couldn't decide where to go next. And they were at a train station in Rome, and they're kind of debating, okay, where should we take the train? Where should we go? What country should we even go to? And they're talking, and they're talking, and they're talking. They can't decide. And maybe part of it, James says, was due to the fact that he got distracted. See, out of the corner of his eye, he saw this woman standing on the platform next to her friend, and she was wearing this patterned flower dress. And the dress caught his eye, but the reason why he was distracted wasn't because of the dress, but it was because of the person. In his own words, he said that this woman that he saw was gloriously beautiful. Like he had never seen someone like this before. So he's distracted. He's kind of looking at this woman when all of a sudden Susan walks over and starts talking to the woman and her friend because she noticed them too, not for the same reason, but she said, hey, these women, they're European. They seem to know where they're going. Let's ask them if they have any recommendations. So she starts talking to them. They start chatting it up. And they say, why don't you come with us? We're going to this fishing village in Italy somewhere. I don't know where it is, uh, but why don't you come with us? You can like stay in the same hotel and we can just travel together for a while. It'll be really fun. So next thing you know, James and Susan and these two French women, Franz and her sister, are traveling together for the week. They're in the same hotel. They're going to the same tourist locations, all four of them. Now, James was with Susan. They had been together for seven years. They were fine. They were comfortable. But the problem was they were fine and they were comfortable. And the weird thing was, James said, he experienced something that he hadn't experienced in a long time. He experienced nervousness, self-consciousness. Like they would want to go swimming, and he would say, no thanks, because he knew he wasn't in shape. He wanted to impress someone for the first time in what felt like forever. They hung out all week, and finally on the last night in the fishing village, they went swimming again. But this time it was dark, so he felt a little bit more comfortable going out with the group. And they're swimming and just having a good time. Nothing's going on. But then Susan says, you know, I'm tired. I'm going to go back to the hotel early. And then Franz's sister says, you know what? I'll come with you. And Franz is like, I want to stay a little bit more. And James says, you know what? I think I'll stay a little bit more too. So they're swimming together. They're having a good time. And remember... It's Europe, more romantic than North America. It was beautiful out. And remember, too, that from the second he saw her, he was captured by her beauty. 
And they were all alone. And James said that when he looked at her face, what he called the most beautiful face I had ever been swimming with, he said he never wanted to kiss a person more. Now, you might ask, Jesse, why are you bringing this up? Like, what does this have to do with anything? Don't you know there are kids here? Why are you talking about kissing? And I thought about that. I was like, should I take this out? He never wanted to shake someone's hand more. Why did I bring this up? Well, the reason why I bring this up is because I looked at some stats. Now, there are all different stats. Some of them are probably inaccurate, but I looked at a few. And it's hard to know by sample size and all of that. But what I saw was anywhere from 30 to 60% of married couples experience infidelity. 30 to 60. Now, 60 is such a high number, and it might include things like marital infidelity, I mean, emotional infidelity, emotional affairs, things like that. But 60 is such a high number that it sounds ridiculous, just unrealistically high. But then I saw another survey where I was like, you know what, maybe it is realistic. Because they did a survey asking people in secret, if there were no consequences, if you knew that you wouldn't get caught, would you consider cheating on your spouse? And it was something like 75% of men and 68% of women or something said, sure. So I'm bringing this up because pretending that temptation doesn't exist, that these things don't happen, it doesn't make those things disappear. We live in a world where opportunities to do the wrong thing abound, and there are consequences to our actions. So let me ask you, have you ever given in to temptation? I mean, maybe right away when I ask that question, you think back to your first drink, which was the first of a million. Maybe the first time you looked at something you weren't supposed to online. The first time you willfully disobeyed your parents. Maybe you think about something that's going on in your life right now, the thing that you struggled with this week, the thing that you promised yourself you wouldn't fall into, but you fell into it yesterday, and now you're here at church and you're processing through it, and it doesn't have to be life-ending. Maybe you gave in to temptation this morning. Maybe you told yourself, I'm going to wake up early, okay? I'm going to wake up early. I'm going to read the Bible a little bit before the kids get up. I'm going to have some time with God. And you told God, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Please help me. And then you were tempted by the snooze button and you gave in. You woke up 30 minutes after everyone else in your family. This may or may not be autobiographical. First Samuel is a unique book. I said this before and I'll say it again. First Samuel is the story of the beginning of the kingdom of Israel. It's a major thing in the Old Testament, First and Second Samuel. But what makes First Samuel unique and what makes the books of Samuel unique is that they really are human books. Okay, don't get me wrong. They are divinely inspired books, but there are few books in the Bible. Actually, I think there are no books in the Bible that get as deep into the hearts of people as these two books. I mean, we stay with these people from basically childhood to death. We see them in their failings and in their successes. I mean, First and Second Samuel, they have so much. In fact, even in what we've seen so far, we've seen so much. We've seen the full gamut of human experience, infertility, friendship, marital strife, the jealousy of success, the pain of failing. We've seen unbelievable cruelty. We've also seen amazing faith, faith that can move mountains and giants. And now we're at a section of the story where it's become clear that Israel isn't big enough for two kings. 
It's not big enough for King Saul and also King David. So Saul has been hunting David mercilessly. And David has been driven into hiding far from home, out in the wilderness. And as we saw last week, as we started getting into this section of the story, the wilderness is the place of temptation. That's where Israel was tempted. That's where Jesus would be tempted later on in the Bible. And the interesting thing is that 1 Samuel 24, 25, and 26, we're in the middle of that right now, are three temptations, just like what Jesus would go through later. Last week, we saw that David had the opportunity to strike down Saul when Saul was going to the bathroom in the cave. You guys remember this? He was tempted to end it right there, and he resisted putting out his hand against the Lord's anointed. But here we see the second of those temptations. And here what we see is that he nearly loses everything. So let's get into it. First heading. We're going to break down this text under, uh, under three headings, into three parts. The first heading, the insult. The insult. And this section really is about what temptation actually is. Okay, look at verse 1. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Now the passage begins with kind of this interruption. The death of Samuel. The book is called Samuel, but we haven't seen Samuel in a long time, which is kind of surprising considering the name of the book. But he's kind of disappeared into the background. Now, we've known Samuel for a long time. The book begins with his mother and with his father. We've seen him even before he was born. We've seen him rise. We've seen him grow up to be the the main spiritual leader of Israel, the prophet. We saw him anoint Saul and David. But since the kings have kind of come to the forefront, Saul has, uh, Samuel has faded away into the background. And now his death marks the end of kind of an era. And everything's going to be about these two kings from here on out. Saul and David are on their own. And what this means is there is no more guidance. There, are, there aren't going to be these special words from God to tell them exactly what to do. There's not going to be a referee in this conflict now that they both respect. So the text tells us that Samuel died and all Israel assembled to mourn him. Now, presumably, this includes Saul, the king of Israel. I'm sure he was there. But it's possible that also David went. Some people are torn about this because the wilderness of Engedi is very far from Ramah. Would he travel all this way? Would he go and kind of break his cover to, to be in this public setting? If it was a movie, he totally would. You see Saul with all the people surrounding him, everyone's mourning, and then far off in the distance, maybe on a cliff, David and his men are there, kind of just out of reach. We don't know if he went or not. But everyone in Israel knows that Samuel is gone. Samuel's gone. Now, the reason this is told us, uh, told to us uh, this right here is probably because this is when it happened in real life. Okay, this is a real story. But this also sets us up for what's next in the chapter. Because as I said, 1 Samuel 25, as we get into it, might almost seem like filler. If you're someone who really likes watching TV, you can, you can admit it to me in private and then I'll pray for you. But if you, I'm just kidding. But if you really like watching TV, you know that there are some stories that move the main plot along and then some that don't really have anything to do with the main story. This might seem like that. Like a story that doesn't push the Saul David drama further. It does introduce us to David's wife, Abigail, but she's not a major player moving forward. So really, it's like, why is this in here? What's going on in this chapter? 
Well, the reason it's here is to show us more of who David is. Even though the book is called Samuel, this is really David's story. And this is a major, major event in David's life. This tells us more about David than many other stories do. It starts with the death of Samuel, too, to help us understand the kind of headspace that David's in, his state of mind. Because remember, this is real life. Now, if you haven't been with us, you might be like, okay, I'm just dropping down in this story. But let me just tell you kind of what you need to know in context. David has been on the run for a while now. I said that. Away from home, away from family, away from his wife. He's been slandered. He's been hunted. He's trying hard, too. I mean, even last week, he was tempted with an opportunity to end everything by taking matters into his own hands. He could have ended Saul right there and gone back home, but he didn't do it because it was wrong. So he's been trying hard. He's, he's had incredible faith and self-control, but it's taken a toll on him. And then Saul, even though he let him go, even though Saul was nice at the end of the last chapter, Saul conspicuously didn't let David come back. He didn't say all is forgiven. He didn't say come back home. And now with Samuel gone, not only has his list of allies grown thin, his hope of mediation, his hope of reconciliation is basically down to nil. It's shot. Now, I'm going somewhere with this. This text is going somewhere with this, but let's see it unfold in real time. Keep reading verse 1. We're going to go a little faster, okay? Trust me. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. So he goes down even deeper into the wilderness. So last week, he was in the wilderness of Engedi. The wilderness of Engedi is like nice wilderness. Paran is more like wilderness, wilderness. It's not nice at all. It's closer toward Egypt. It's closer to where Israel had been wandering for 40 years back in the day. So life is literally getting harder because conditions are harder. But the text also is giving us a clue as to what to expect. It's not just that his physical life is getting harder but that his spiritual life is about to get harder. And the two aren't disconnected. Not at all. You know, for me, I'll, I'll just share from my own life. I don't get angry that often, or I, I feel like I don't. Um, and maybe you guys would disagree if you know me for a long time. But I, I'm pretty chill, I would say, overall. It's not one of my top sins, except when I go hiking. Okay, I, something about every time. Do you guys, do you guys like to hike, anyone? I'm sure a lot of people do. <laughs> Most people do, I would say. I know that I'm in the wrong here. I'm trying to change. But every time I go hiking, I, uh, I get really mad. And Christine knows, right, on our honeymoon, I got super mad. We went hiking to see this waterfall, and I was all mad about it for some reason. Uh, I went to the Grand Canyon with some of you. Maybe, uh, maybe not. Were you there? Okay, so the, uh, her husband was there. And I was really mad. In fact, I, I made it up the incline, because you go down first. And then you come back up, so it's harder on the way back. But I powered up because I was fueled by rage, right? I don't know why I was so mad, but I beat everyone all the way back. It's just, it, like, what is hiking, right? It's just, it's hard walking. Like, I could walk easily on flat ground. Okay, anyway, the blessing of it is that it is hard, okay? I, I get it. But there's a connection. The reason why I bring this up is there's a connection, I think, be, between how we feel physically and how vulnerable we are spiritually, Okay, I see this every time that I hike. I'm way more irritable. I'm way more angry than I normally am, way more impatient. But you might see this too when you're tired. You lose your temper more with your kids. 
You might see this when you've had kind of a really exhausting season of ministry. You're more tempted to look at something online. It's why even a little bit of alcohol can change our physical state and then lead to a change in our spiritual state. We become way meaner. We might say things that we regret. See, what I'm saying is the text is telling us that the difficulty of David's physical life is getting harder. And this is telling us a little bit what to expect when it comes to his spiritual life. He's in the wilderness of Paran, and things are starting to heat up to a boil. Verse 2, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, the name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. Now, a few notes here. Okay, we're not going to get super deep into this. It's more like giving us background. One, the man is introduced to us by what he has before anything else. This is the distinguishing factor of who this man is. He is stinking rich. He's crazy rich. Two, his business is in Carmel. Now, Carmel is kind of near the wilderness, but it's super nice. It's very beautiful over there. It's where you go when you're rich. You move there to live a nice, comfortable life. Now, the thing about Carmel is, if you go back in the story a little bit, Carmel was an area that was pro-Saul. In fact, Saul had defeated the Amalekites near there, and he had set up his own monument to himself in Carmel. So you kind of get a feeling for how there's going to be some tension going on here. Third, Nabal, that's the guy's name. He's the complete opposite of his wife. She's discerning and beautiful. He is badly behaved and harsh. And then fourth, he's a Calebite, which means, okay, he's from a good family. Caleb was one of the heroes of Israel's history. He and Joshua were the only two spies with faith. So it kind of shows that the apple can fall far from the, uh, from the tree. Your pedigree doesn't necessarily matter. But what it also means, I think, for our purposes, is that because he's a Calebite, that means he's from what tribe? The tribe of Judah. He is distantly related to David. Same tribe. Verse 4, David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. Okay, now you kind of get what's going on here. It's not that hard to interpret. But remember, David has 600 men. Okay, he kind of has this crew of followers. He's in the wilderness. He knows Nabal is stinking rich. So David asks if Nabal can spare anything. And he mentions, look, whenever we came into contact with your people, we treated them well. Some commentators wonder if this is a veiled threat, like we've been treating them well, but maybe we won't in the future. I don't think that's what it is. We can give David the benefit of the doubt. I mean, he's very respectful. He says, peace be to all your household. He calls his men your servants. He says, I am your son. He's just asking nicely if you can spare a little bit. Verse 9, when David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David 
Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Now, okay, Nabal, notice, doesn't just say no. He's rude about it. Who is David? He knows who David is. They're part of the same clan. David's the most popular person in all of Israel. In fact, he gives it away when he knows his father. He says, who is the son of Jesse? Same tribe. He's saying this as an insult. He says, who is this no-name person? You're a nobody. And then he says, there are a lot of servants breaking away from their masters. He uses the word for slave. He's basically saying, why should I help a runaway slave? You're the one who chose to get away. Why should I help you? Verse 11, shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? My, 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 my. Why should I give what's mine and give it to some randos like you? You don't deserve it. Verse 12, so David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. Now, before we get into his response, imagine that you are David for a second. Just for a moment, put yourself in David's sandals. Imagine being that hungry, that tired physically, that tired mentally, that tired spiritually, even having to kind of overcome the temptation to strike down Saul, having to show this crazy man mercy and grace and receiving so little in return. And you ask a rich man of your own tribe from a good family whom you have actually helped out in the past if he can just spare a little bit. And then he says this to you. I mean, be honest. How would you respond? I mean, I'd probably be gracious unless I'm hiking. Then I'd be really mad. I'm kidding. I think most people, most people would be really bothered by this, to put it mildly. David made a request. It was reasonable. And instead of being helped, instead of even being politely declined, David is rudely denied and insulted. So the question that the text, uh, the, that the text is pointing or positing for us is, how is David going to respond? It spent all these verses setting it up, but what is David going to do in response to this temptation? Now, you might wonder, okay, why am I talking about temptation? It doesn't say temptation in here. Well, the dictionary definition of temptation is a thing or course of action that attracts or tempts someone. Don't you just love that when the dictionary does that? Temptation is when you get tempted. You're like, oh, okay, thank you. But, there's, but here's what it's saying. It's saying that a temptation is anything that you find yourself wanting to do in the moment, usually a bad thing. See, temptation is the thing that happens before you fall into sin. Temptation is what attracts you to a bad decision. Temptation is the opportunity that presents itself for you to go the wrong way. David hears what Nabal said. He has an opportunity to respond in either a godly way or a sinful way. What does he do? Verse 13. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. Basically, his reaction is, you insulted me, I'm going to kill you. It's not even an eye for an eye. It's an eye for your entire household. Now, let me ask you, though, before we get into the second part of this. In light of this, think about yourself. Have you ever given in to temptation? And if you have, why? What was it about 
the temptation, the situation, the circumstance that drew you to it. You know, it's interesting. It's crazy, actually, that David could resist striking down Saul when that decision was probably more justifiable in a worldly sense. I mean, you could say it was self-defense, right? Saul threw the first spear. Saul is the one hunting him. Saul is the one who is in sin. But here, one insult, and David is going to go wipe Nabal's bloodline from the face of the earth. He talks about this later. You almost get the sense that if Nabal were in the same room as him, you know what David would do? He would rise up, grab his spear, and chuck it at the wall, trying to pin him against it. Who does that look like? It doesn't look like the David that you and I know. It looks like Saul. What's going on here? It's temptation. See, the thing is, we're all tempted by different things, tempted in different ways, in different situations. And guys, one more definition of temptation. Temptation is the lie that you believe. See, there's a reason why Satan is called both the tempter and the father of lies. We believe lies all the time, and that undergirds so much of our sin. See, we believe something, and then we decide, is, we decide to do something about it that's wrong. For example, I've been clean for six months now. I think I deserve a little indulgence. I've been a good friend all this time. I've done so much for this person. I think it's right for me to have sky-high expectations and to be bitter about how bad of a friend they are. I've been so gracious to my husband. You'd think I would get a little grace back because I think, I, I don't know, I deserve it. You can't deserve grace. But that's the lie that we believe. Or how about this one? Their sin makes my sin okay. When you're sinned against, that's one of the biggest temptations there can be. Retaliation is an almost irresistible indulgence. I mean, come on, all my married people here, right? When, when was the time when you said the meanest possible thing to your spouse? Probably hiking, right, I guess. When was that time? The most harmful, least God-honoring thing. Right after, probably, they said one of those things to you. Has Nabal sinned? Yes. But does this justify David's intended, murderous, soul-like rampage? You tell me. And this leads to the second heading, the intervention. First, the insult. David is insulted, and he loses it. He's going to murder someone for insulting him. Second, the intervention, which is about taking a good, hard look at ourselves. Last chapter. Okay, there are a lot of parallels to Saul here. Last chapter, who was it who assembled an entire army for a one-person manhunt? It wasn't David. It was Saul. Now who is it? In the book so far, who is the person consumed with his own power and his own kingdom and his own reputation, his own ego? Saul. But who is it now? David takes 400 men strapped, and he intends not only to kill Nabal, but also every male in the household. Why? Because he has spoken an insult against the name of David. Now, before we get into the next verse, pause here for a moment. Another question. How surprised are you that this is happening? How surprised are you that David is showing himself to be a lot like Saul in this text? How surprised are you? So we have to understand that this is one of the defining moments in David's life. It's not so much about the plot. It's not so much about Abigail. It's about David. There's a reason why we're told about this. And at least part of it has to do with the fact 
there are few things, maybe nothing, that reveals who we truly are more than how we respond to temptation. See, temptation and our responses to it, they reveal our true conviction, our true affections, and really our true character. And what this reveals about David is kind of ugly. And here's the thing. However you feel about David right here, it's actually insightful. You know why? Because however you feel about David here is a litmus test for how well you understand yourself. How well you know yourself. See, I can see there being a mixture of sentiment out there. Because on the one hand, David is supposed to be different. He's set up as different. A man better than Saul. A man after God's own heart. And we've seen him prove that. He showed mercy to Saul. He had faith when he slew Goliath. He has done so many things different. He has walked a different path and God is with him. So it should be a little surprising that this one thing could set him off like this. But on the other hand, on the flip side, maybe we should expect this. I mean, what do we expect? Everyone has a breaking point. See, it's tempting, I think, and I use this word on purpose, but it's tempting to think that the Bible has heroes and it has villains. And our goal is to avoid being the villains and to try to be more like the heroes, be more like Daniel, be more like Joshua, be more like David. But that's only somewhat true. In some ways, we should try to be like those people. We should imitate them as they imitate God, his example. And it is a story of villains. But really, in terms of heroes, the Bible only has one hero, and his name is in David. From the garden, since the fall, the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve have by nature been enemies of God. And you know why this happened? It's because they were weak against temptation. I mean, do you remember? Okay, let's go all the way back. Back in the day. Do you remember Cain and Abel? Cain and Abel were the two sons of Adam and Eve, some of the first humans who ever lived. They both offered a sacrifice to God, and God was pleased with Abel's, but not pleased with Cain's. And in jealousy, Cain rose up, and he killed his own brother Abel, the first murder of all time. And you see shades of Cain in Saul's murderous jealousy. But what's interesting is Cain was exiled away. Okay, Cain was taken away from the family by sin. He was driven away, and he started kind of his own family away from Adam and Eve and their new son Seth. He started his own line, and... In his own tribe, kind of, what happened was he had kids, and then they had kids, and they had kids, and one of his early descendants was named Lamech, and Lamech said something interesting, Genesis 4.23. The Bible tells us that he said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Basically, he's talking to his wives. He says, someone wounded me, and I killed him. Okay, it wasn't an eye for an eye. It was an eye for a body, as we talked about. And he bragged about it. He says, if you think that Cain did something crazy, what I did was way crazier. And we read something like that, and we're like, what evil? And yet, if we step back, we step back and maybe step back into 1 Samuel 25. What did Nabal do? What wrong did he actually do? He was rude. Yes, that's bad. He was inhospitable, which was really bad. In Israel, he was insulting. All of that is bad. It's annoying. But it's not worthy of death, according to the law of God. Not even close. 
David is acting like Lamech here. He's acting like Saul. He's acting like Cain. And should we be surprised? Who is David's father? I mean, it's Jesse. But go all the way back. He's the son of Adam, just like we are. Now, why do I bring this up before verse 14? Well, you hear it all the time. You hear it all the time in church. I would never do that. I would never do that thing that that other person did. Or how can people even be like that? Or what's wrong with people? Every single person that I've ever done marriage counseling with, they were sure that they wouldn't get divorced. And that's why Christianity has a 0% divorce rate. Is that true? I understand the feeling of what's wrong with people, or it just horrifies you that you might do something like that. You just recoil at the thought, I would never want to do that. I think the, I, I think the same thing sometimes. But you know what it just shows is that we have a defective view of human nature. Our biblical anthropology, our theology of human beings is off. The truth is you and I are extremely fallible people. One temptation and you be Saul. I'd be Cain. David would do what Lamech did. You have to know this about yourself. David, the man who displays such incredible self-control, soft-heartedness, and mercy the last chapter, gives in right here. David, what did he call himself? He said, I am a flea. I'm a dead dog in humility. Now, when Nabal insults him, he says, how dare you say that about me? I'm going to come kill you. We can flip that switch so easily. I remember a pastor was telling me years ago, he said, after he preaches, after he does a day of ministry Sunday night, that's when he gets into fights with his wife. It's after that high that he experiences the lowest of lows. David, who relied upon God for everything he needed in the past, decides to take what he needs by force. But, verse 14, But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us. We suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Okay, so meanwhile, as David is on his way, in the providence of God, one of the servants goes to Abigail, doesn't go to her husband, goes to the wife, and, to, and tells her exactly what happened. And it's what David said. David's men were out there. They, they protected them from, you know, danger and attackers and marauders. And he's like, look, our master railed against David. You know David is dangerous. He's going to come, and he's probably going to do us harm. So we got to intervene. We got to intervene, verse 18. Then, day, and then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. Okay, so this is quite a bit. Okay, we don't have to get into every single piece of the meal here or the menu. Uh, there are 600 men, and she's giving what they have on hand to feed them. Some good stuff. She takes off, verse 19, and she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. He's on his way to commit massacre, to destroy this entire household, to kind of do his own knob. 
okay, when Saul sent that guy to kill everyone in the city. Verse 21, they meet. Now David had said, surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. You can hear David's inner dialogue. I've done so many good things. And this guy returns evil to me. Verse 22, God do so to the enemies of David. And more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. David is so heated. He gets into that mode where everything in his mind is justifying why this is the right decision. He even makes a vow, which is a smart vow because it doesn't call down any curses upon him. But he makes a vow against Nabal. But listen to his language. He calls what Nabal did evil. He talks about the enemies of David. He speaks about God, but he doesn't use God's name, the Lord, Yahweh. Truly in this moment, David is on a terrible path. He's not even thinking about God. In his vision, we talked about vision last week. He's just seeing red. But verse 23, Abigail meets him and she says, when Abigail saw saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Now, you got to read this in context. Okay, what she does is she displays remarkable humility kind of at the right moment. But if you've been reading, this is almost a mirror image of 1 Samuel 24, except David is in the other spot. It highlights how Saul-like he's looking from here. She is so respectful, calling David, this vagabond really, my lord, and calling herself, even though she is a wealthy woman of prominence, your servant. And then she keeps speaking, verse 25, let not my lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. So she calls it for what it is. Nabal is a fool. The word Nabal is very similar to the word fool in Hebrew. So there's a word play, verse 26. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. Okay, this is interesting. Notice that Abigail brings the Lord into it, Yahweh into it, just like how David did with Saul last chapter. It's not about God's judgment here, but it's about God's intervention, but she's bringing God in. See, it's not just Abigail by chance meeting David as an act of self-preservation. That's part of it. But the big picture is it's God stepping in to save David from himself. Now keep reading, and we'll get through this quick to get the gist of what she's saying. Verse 27, And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you as long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God. Just trust God. Keep reading, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. Real quick, the text wasn't kidding when it said she was smart. She uses the word sling twice on purpose, and this calls to mind what? The most famous event in all of David's life, when instead of using a sword or a bow and arrow or whatever, he used a slingshot to take down the Philistine champion Goliath. She knows exactly what she's saying. She's inserting, she's reminding David of his greatest moment in his worst moment. Verse 30. 
And when the Lord has done to my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. She knows that David is going to be king. She says, when you do, you don't want this blood guilt on your conscience for killing for such a petty reason, for taking matters into your own hands and not trusting God. See, Abigail is both beautiful and wise, and the wisdom really shows here. In fact, you know, it's interesting. I was reading, sorry, my mouth's kind of dry, but I was reading this commentary, and one of the commentators was going on and on about Abigail. He's like, Abigail, she's so awesome, man. She's so beautiful. She's so smart. In fact, she's my favorite one of David's wives. Like, I've often wished myself that the Messiah would have come through Abigail and not through Bathsheba. And I was like, bro, you have a crush on Abigail? You know she's uh, in heaven, right, where there's no marriage. She's also someone else's wife in the text. Uh, But his point stands. Abigail is great. With theological soundness, with gracious humility, with brilliant reminders of who God is and who David has been, she talks David down from the ledge. And we could spend a lot of time on the details of what she said. It's one of the greatest speeches, honestly, in the entire Bible. But I want you to get the big picture of what she's getting at, of what the text is getting at, and showing us this right after the previous chapter. Because what she's doing here is she's being David of last chapter to David of this chapter. Sometimes you need someone to tell you what you already know. You know, I was reading 1 Corinthians earlier this week, and this text stood out to me. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Oftentimes, at our strongest moment, we are paradoxically at our most vulnerable. And then he says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Temptations, they abound. They are sure to come, but so is God's help. Are you fallible? Yes, absolutely. That should make you humble. But is God faithful? Also, yes, absolutely. And that should make you hopeful. And oftentimes the help that God provides for us is other people. Sometimes we just think about Christian relationships as an obligation. And there is a sense of that. You do have have a calling to love people in a sacrificial way. But I think sometimes we view people just as obstacles. You know, it's just about obedience to God. This person is my cross to bear. Oh man, I have to marry this person because they're a Christian, you know, and I wanted to marry someone else who is better, whatever. It's been a crazy week. Oh man, I have to go to church. I have so much to do today. Why'd you sign us up for community group, honey? You know, we have so much going on in this season. Look, when the Bible talks about friendship and fellowship and community among Christians, it links it directly to encouragement. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but what? Encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need to encourage. We need to receive encouragement. We're built for it. Even from the beginning, it wasn't good for man to be alone. You and I are extremely fallible people. That's why you need God, obviously. But that's also why not as obviously you need other people. I know some of you guys are struggling to live for God. 
I know maybe it's been a few weeks since you've cracked open your Bible or wanted to. I know some of you have been struggling with anger or you've been fighting in your marriage way more than you ever thought you would. Maybe you feel overwhelmed as a parent. Maybe you're spiraling into self-destructive self-medication, right? You spend eight hours a day on your phone. You're binge-watching TV. You're, You're drinking a little bit more every night, a little bit more every day. If you are, welcome to the club. I mean, we're not all struggling with the same things, but we all struggle. We all face temptation. And if the word of God is true, then God has provided a way for you out of it. But maybe you need to open your eyes to see what that is. People who can speak truth to you, who can remind you of who God is. It's why we listen to sermons and why we sing great hymns and why we meet up just to talk, even though we're busy. It's not always learn something new. It's not always about being challenged in a crazy way. Sometimes you just need to be reminded of what you knew last chapter. David was about to give in to temptation, and God used truth through Abigail to stop him. And this leads to the third point. We'll do it quick. The interpretation. The insult, the intervention, the interpretation. We have to understand that temptation is as much internal as it is external. Verse 32 And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Okay, so David praises God. The red clears from his vision. How does he interpret these turn of events through the lens of God's sovereign work? David was about to do something that would have ruined everything for him. But because of this intervention, he turns back. And of course, he's thankful. Verse 33, Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. So he acknowledges what she said. She was right. Verse 34, For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. This is what I would have done. Verse 35, Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, And he said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. Crazy thing for David, the true king, to say in a lot of ways. I have obeyed your voice, the voice of a human, for one, but also the voice of a woman, which was very odd in that society for a man to say or to do, but also to obey the voice of the wife of the man that he was going to kill. Abigail by speaking truth, by reminding him, shocked David back to his senses. And David doesn't do what he was going to do. See, the thing about temptation is that it's not always external. It's never always external. Something about this situation tipped off something in you. Because a second ago, he was filled with rage. He was going to kill everyone without mercy. But now that she has spoken truth to him, he doesn't want to anymore. Did Nabal apologize? Did the insult get taken back into his mouth? No. But something changed in him because of what Abigail said. So think about this for you. Are you someone who can be course corrected? You could have a lot of people speaking truth into your life. God could be so gracious to you, giving you many off-ramps off the highway toward ruining your life. But are you someone who's willing to course correct? Is there a humility in you? So many Christians, unfortunately, have gotten themselves on an island. Anytime someone corrects them, that person is a hater or overly critical. 
Maybe they've gotten to a point where they don't trust anybody. They don't let anyone into their lives. So maybe it does feel that way because you don't have anyone you know for sure loves you. Sometimes you've got to work on that beforehand. That's why you have to work on friendship before the crisis happens. I'm not saying be unstable, tossed by the wind. You don't have to do whatever anyone tells you to do. But what I'm saying is, are you someone who could be by someone talked down from the ledge? Now, the story isn't over. And it ends with kind of this interesting side note. But verse 36, And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. So Nabal's just living his best life, having a grand, grand old time. Abigail waits until he's sober to tell him what happened. She tells him in verse 37, In the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. So she's like, hey, by the way, um, so I ran into David, uh, and he was going to kill you with 400 men, and, and he was packing heat, and don't worry, I begged for your life. And Nabal's heart dies within him, which is kind of a poetic way of saying that he had a stroke. That's why he's as stone. He can't move anymore. And then verse 38, and about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. He dies. But it's not just that he died. It's that God struck him, and then he died. See, the reason why this whole last section is called the interpretation in this sermon is because it's how you interpret these events. David was thinking like Saul. He was interpreting everything horizontally. Okay, you insult me. Therefore, because my glory has been assaulted, I'm going to attack you and kill you. But because of Abigail and her words, all of a sudden, it's like David is seeing things in 3D again. And he remembers that there is a vertical dimension, that God is real. And God is the one who takes care of it. Verse 39, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. And David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. Now, it's kind of an even weirder ending. You're like, okay, we found out what happened to Nabal. That's great, kind of happy ending. But then he just marries that guy's wife. Now, keep reading. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. And that's the end of the chapter. Thin, okay? Saul had given away his daughter to be another man's wife. Because maybe you're wondering, what happened to his first wife, Michal, right? Like, he's already married. So Saul had decided to treat David as if he were dead. That's basically the symbolism of it. By giving someone's wife away without even divorce. It's like, well, he's dead to me, so you can marry someone else. So David, he takes two wives, and that's the end of the story. Now, the law doesn't prohibit you're taking more than one wife. And I talked about this in the very first, well, it was the second message of the series. You can go back and listen to my impassioned uh, rant against polygamy, okay? There's a reason why I think it's bad, even though it's not prohibited by the law. But the law does say that the king should not multiply wives. 
See, on the one hand, what David is doing is good. You could justify it. He's like, well, her husband's dead. He died of a stroke. She's a widow now. It's hard to be a widow in this society. Plus, I'm a pretty good guy. Same tribe. We should get together. And David is a good guy. But the king is supposed to be more than a good guy. David multiplies wives. And the story ends. David averts a close disaster, a close call. But it ends by showing, as he walks off into the distance, some cracks in his armor. And I think what the lesson is, and we'll see this even next chapter too, um, the lesson is, just because you overcome one temptation doesn't mean that the war is over. You could win one battle, doesn't mean that the fight is done. The Bible says the devil prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour, 1 Kings 5, 8. David, by the skin of his teeth, barely escapes temptation. God intervenes to help him. But what we see here is that there are still going to be temptations for David to face. And some of them, he'll stumble a little bit. So that's why we're taught to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We'll close here. James 1 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. See, temptation is the lie that we believe. Temptation is what we want to do. And temptation will, if you give into it, it will eventually lead to death. Now, you might be wondering, when I brought up that story in the beginning, did Franz try to seduce James in any way? Was she flirty with him? Did she kind of give him signs or signals? The truth is, not at all. He's with Susan. She was just living her life with her sister. They're just traveling together. So how was this temptation? She wasn't trying to get him to commit adultery. The truth is, temptation is just as much internal as it is external. It's what James wanted in that moment. And you know what the Bible calls that? Adultery of the heart. So they're there, right, in Europe, in the little fishing village. They were alone, and James had developed this crush on her over the week, even though he had been with Susan for seven years. They swam around for a bit, and then they decided to go back to the hotel. Nothing happened. And they're walking to the hotel, and he's thinking, okay, I need to, if I'm going to make my move, now's the time to make my move. They get to the hotel, and he leans in to do what he wants to do, to kiss her. But at the last minute, he does what he read about in tourist books in Europe. He gives, them, he gives her the friendly three-cheek, like three kisses on the cheek thing as just a sign of friendship. And then he walks away and he leaves. He says, good night, goodbye, and they don't see each other again. And he goes back to the hotel room, and Susan asks him, uh, how was it? And he says for the first time, honestly, he says, it was really hard. And she just said, I know. I mean, I, Susan wasn't a dummy. She knew kind of what was going on. She says, I know. And James said that he broke down and he cried right here. And it was a very weird ending to the story. He was telling it live. Um, he kind of just ended by saying, you know, I cried because I realized that all this time I had been thinking of myself as this good guy who was faithful to Susan when what I really wanted was to kiss Franz. How could I reconcile these two things together? And that's where he ends it. 
just him being honest about where he's at, but there's no conclusion. And I don't know what happened to him or to Susan or to his relationship, but what I do know is that even though he didn't kiss Franz romantically, that's what he wanted to do. And that's the problem. I do know that when temptation had come knocking at his door and he had barely been able to close it in time, uh, even after opening it up a little too much, that he had really struggled with even closing it at the end. And I know, to bring it to us, I know that you and I, we do and we will face temptation. We will face it every single day of our lives. But unlike with James, who was trying to just live his life in confusion, not really knowing what to do about himself and his conflicting desires, for us, if you're a Christian, then you know that God will help you. God can help us. He will help us. In fact, he already has. He's given us these people to walk alongside us and to encourage us. And most of all, he's given us his son who is tempted in every way as we are, Hebrews 4.15, yet without sin. And he overcame temptation. He overcame sin and death because we couldn't do it on our own. He understands. So today, I'm not calling you to be perfect, to resist temptation by your own strength. That's impossible. But what I am calling you to is to once again put your life into the hands of the one who is perfect. Let's go to him right now. Will you pray with me? I'm going to give you a second, give you a moment to pray on your own. Whatever is on your heart, to bring it before the Lord. And then I'll close this in prayer. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be real with ourselves, to really know that we are prone to wander, not as an excuse, God, but God, I pray that you would help us to know how weak we are. And God, I pray, God, as a church, that you would help us to cling to you. God, I pray that our weakness would drive us to greater dependence. And I pray, God, that you would show your power and your grace and your mercy in our lives. As you help us, God, to not ruin our lives. As you help us, God, to overcome sin and temptation. As you win victories for us by your strength. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here, God, who are caught. Who are caught in different struggles, God, and different sins. Caught in temptation. God, I pray that you would intervene. And I pray, Father, that you would help them to have the humility to be course-corrected. God, we know that you can do this. We put it all in your hands. We pray this in your Christ's name. Amen.